Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Good morning. Well, thank you all for joining us this morning here at Fort Hill Church. It's a beautiful day. This morning, I was, whenever I came here, a few Sundays ago, a few Saturdays actually, um, as some of you know, Hannah came here and there was a pipe that was burst. That was whenever it was super cold. And I came here this morning halfway expecting there to be another burst pipe. So that didn't happen. Thank you, Lord, for that. We get to worship and gather together. And we get to jump into John chapter 13. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, there are some Bibles floating around if you don't have one. Um, and then we also have the text on the back. So we've been working through the book of John, looking at this fourth gospel, the last gospel ever written, and the most distinct of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's been a bit, it's been about three months since we've been in the book of John, but we are coming back to John 13, verse 31 to 38, and just to remind you about why John wrote this Gospel. And it's a, he tells us why at the very end, we're not there yet, but at the very end of the book, He says he wrote this gospel, he wrote this book, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. So all these ideas, all these thoughts about who this man Jesus is, all these accounts, all these stories, and even today, is he he a teacher? Is he a rabbi? Is he a good person? Is he like some type of sage, you know, wise guy type of deal? Or was he God in the flesh? John wrote this gospel, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Today, we're going to talk about the glory of Jesus, and we're going to see this glory sort of discussed and explained. It's a little bit technical, the first part. We're going to talk about the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Son of God, and the glory of God the Father. And then we're going to apply that glory to ourselves. And we're going to see not only the glory of Jesus, but the glory of Jesus expressed in us. What does that look like? for us to reveal or express the glory of Jesus. And then the flip side of that, what does it look like for us to deny the glory of Jesus? We're going to see all of that together this morning. So if you want to turn in John 13, I mean verse 31 to verse 38, I'm going to read for us, and then we're going to dive in. This is what it says, starting in verse 31. And when he had gone out, that he there is Judas, Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in the Son of Man. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot come, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till till you have denied me three times. 
a lot to work through, a lot of very famous um, passages and ideas here from um, the commandment to love one another to the denial of Peter prophesied by Jesus. Before we dive in, I just want to reestablish what's going on in this book and what's going on in this moment to reestablish our context. The beginning of John 13 is the scene of the Last Supper. And you guys, I'm sure, have seen that picture before, the Last Supper with Jesus in the middle and his disciples all around him. So Jesus is having a last meal with his people. And that's just cool in and of itself, right? I mean, he's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He's about to be crucified. And he decides to throw a meal, and he's actually celebrating the Passover meal. So it's something they were going to do anyways. But he does it with his disciples. His death is imminent. He's going to die soon, not even weeks, not even a few days, but more like hours, in, in, not an hour's time, but a few hours' time, Jesus is going to die. And we know that he's going to die because the episode with Judas has already happened. And this is the last sermon we had here in John where we talked about Judas. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Then he says, one of you guys are going to betray me. It's the one I hand over this piece of bread to. Kind of a weird symbol for a betrayer, but that's what Jesus does. He hands Judas the bread, and then Judas leaves into the night. And what is set in motion is the greatest event in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so now Jesus is preparing his disciples for that crucifixion for this time to come. And he starts with what is foundational to the cross, which is the glory of God and the glory of Jesus. I'm going to read this again, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. That's sort of a weird statement, right? You're think, reading it, and you're thinking, like, what does that even mean? Right? He's saying glory all the time. It's sort of like a word salad. We know the glory of God is imminent. That's what he's saying, that God will glorify him at once. But what does all this even mean? What is Jesus getting at? How is Jesus glorified? It says that God the Father is glorified, that God will glorify him. How is Jesus glorified? And why is it now? What's going on? Well, what Jesus is doing is he is setting up this hour that is to come. He's setting up what's about to happen, and that is the crucifixion, okay? And this is something that we all know Jesus died on the cross, right? We all know Jesus died on the cross, but I think we forget just how much that means for us and what it means for, you know, understanding who God is, that that is the fullest expression of God's glory is the cross. The fullest expression of God's glory is the cross. Judas has left, the cross is looming, glory is going to be found. This is what it says in John 12, verse 23. This is what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, that hour again is the cross, and then moving down to verse 27, this is what Jesus says, okay, Jesus knowing this is about to happen, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
you see that. I, I always wonder what, what was going through Jesus' mind, right? He's about to die. What's going through his mind? Do you think he was really jazzed to be like, yeah, it was about to happen. This is going to be great, right? No, what does he say? My soul is troubled. Okay, my soul is troubled. If you, you know, we're going to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying, right? He, he's praying so intently. He's not bleeding, but like droplets, like blood are coming out of his mind. Like he's so, and he says, Father, if you will, take this cup from me. But then he has this resolve, but for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. So we see the connection again. The cross equals glory. Both Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father are glorified at the crucifixion. And it's for this purpose that Jesus came. One thing that I've been struck by reading through the book of John is over and over, Jesus says that he came to accomplish the will of the Father. To accomplish the will of the Father. Now, this is what the will of the Father is. And this is from Isaiah 53.10. This is what it says. This is the prophecy of Jesus. It says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, how do you sort of reconcile that, right? Jesus says over and over, I came to accomplish the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that his son would die on a cross. How does that work? And how does that turn into glory? It's so backwards. How does that work out? But this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. John 6, 38. Let's read this. I'm just, I know I'm throwing scripture at you, but I just want to make the point. So it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come down from heaven, not to accomplish my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Whenever we are looking at this text in John, it's sort of like glory pong. Okay, you guys remember that old school game, Pong? Like the first game ever made. It's just like two blocks, like bouncing a, a ball back and forth, right? That's what is happening here. The Son glorifies the Father by accomplishing the will of the Father, even though the will of the Father is that the Son would die. That is what's glorifying to God, die for our sins. And then the Father glorifies the Son by giving him the name that is above every name, right? That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. If I could get there, this is what it says. And you guys, I'm sure, know the text. Verse 8, I'll start in verse 8. And Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, there's our cross again. Verse 9, therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name as above every name. How does that come? By the cross. The cross is the glory of God revealed to the world. What this tells us is the crucifixion, and I think you can connect the resurrection, is the crowning achievement and the crowning glory of God. Do you want to see God most glorified? Look at the cross. And it doesn't make sense. Because what happened to Jesus on the cross? What was, what was the cross reserved for? The cross was reserved for criminals. The cross was reserved for shaming. 
Jesus was literally mocked on the cross. And you would have to think that looking at Jesus on the cross that he lost, right? <laughs> this guy lost. He said he was God. Now he's dead. And what did the Jews say? If you're God, why don't you come down from that cross? And then the, the thieves on either side of Jesus were reviling him and mocking him and the soldiers mocking him. What they did not realize was at that moment, God was most glorified. Because at the moment of death of Jesus, the death of Jesus was the very moment that Jesus defeated death. That God flipped it upside down. That the world and Satan said, all right, we got him. And God said, no, you didn't get me. Because what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. He proved for the world that he was the Son of God, and glory came out of that tomb. Whenever we see Jesus on the cross, we are seeing the highest expression of God's glory, the fullest revelation of his love, and the loudest witness to who he is, to his person. And the amazing thing is that you probably don't realize just how amazing that actually is. and Because I, I don't either. Because we've heard it. right? We know it. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. That's what we celebrate in e on Easter. I'm going to tell you a quick Old Testament story to put this in perspective so you can really appreciate how glorious the cross is. Okay? Exodus 33.18. Exodus 33.18. Me and Hannah are reading the book of Exodus right now. It's good. We just started. They just, uh, just got done with the plagues. This is a little farther down in Exodus 33 with Moses. So Moses, sure a lot of you guys know, but just so you don't know, Moses is like the head leader of Israel. Like everyone loves, well not everyone loves Moses, but you know, if if you were a young Israelite kid and you had posters on your wall, you probably have a poster of Moses up on your wall, right? Or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. But Moses is probably there, okay? He's a prophet. He's the leader. He's the guy that speaks to God. He's the guy that went up to Mount Sinai. God was on top of Mount Sinai, Exodus 20. He gives the Ten Commandments. The whole mountain is about to blow up. Everyone's afraid. God says, don't touch the mountain. Only Moses can come up. Moses comes up, gets the Ten Commandments. His face shines whenever he's in the presence of God. So that's Moses, okay? He's an important guy. Something really interesting is asked by Moses in Exodus 33, 18. This is what he says. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now that's sort of an interesting question. God, I mean, Moses has, Moses has seen some amazing things. He saw the ten plagues. He was there. He was a part of that. The, you know, the Nile turned to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the hail, um, the Passover. He saw the Red Sea. He was a part of that. Um, you know, he saw all sorts of stuff. But he still doesn't think he's seen the glory of God, the full expression of God's glory. I mean, if you saw a sea split in two, you'd be like, wow, that's amazing, right? Moses still hasn't seen how awesome God is, essentially, is, is what's going on. So he says, God, let me see your glory. And this is what God says in verse 20, okay? God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, so first thing, 
God does not have a face. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's what it says in John chapter 4. But face is symbolic of you can't witness the full expression of who I am, the full revelation of my glory. You, you can't handle that. Because if I did that, you would die. That's what, that's what God is saying, okay? My glory, unhinged, is too much for you, okay? But then, um, he, he goes on. Actually, we'll get there in a little bit. It's a weird thing to think that the glory of God is dangerous. But that's what God is saying to, to Moses. If you guys have read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is a prophet. Whenever Isaiah meets God and sees him, this is what Isaiah says in, chapter, in verse 5. He says, woe is me. So Isaiah sees God, and he has this vision. He sees God it's sort of in his throne room. Woe is me. Sort of a weird response. Why would Isaiah say that? I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. So whenever people in the Old Testament come into the presence of God, they just get really low because they realize they're in the presence of someone who is so much greater than they are that they can't handle it. They can't handle it. I remember watching a, a YouTube video. It was at like Bethel Church, and uh, they had like a glory cloud thing. I'm not sure what it was, but it was something I don't even know. I don't know how to, how to interpret what's going on. Anyways, everyone was taking out their cell phones and recording it, and I was just thinking, like, in the Old Testament, whenever people saw God, they, like, got down, like, way down, right? And we're going to see with Moses what God has to do with Moses so that he can even see a teensy bit of him, okay? What does God do with Moses? Moses wants to see God. What does God do? Verse 21, the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what does God have to do with Moses? He has to put him in the middle of a mountain, in the cleft of the rock. He's got to cover him, and then Moses can only see just a portion of his back. Okay. Now what does that mean? Again, God doesn't have a back. Okay, how much easier is it to recognize someone by seeing their face or seeing their back? Seeing their face, right? So Moses can only handle just a small revelation of God, just the smallest expression of who God is. That's all Moses can handle of God's revelation. That's what God does. Puts him in a mountain. You can only see a portion of me. If you see more of me, you can't handle it. You can't handle it. Now, think about this. Understanding what we just read in John, okay? What do you think this says about the glory of God revealed in Jesus? What do you think this means about the glory of God revealed in Jesus? This Jesus, who it says in Colossians 1.19, in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. This Jesus, who it says in John 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That whenever we see the cross, 
we see something Moses longed to see that Moses couldn't see. That whenever we see Jesus crucified, the fullest expression of who God is, God had to put Moses in the middle of a mountain just so he could see like just a teensy part of himself, but we get the full story. How incredible is that? The glory of Jesus revealed, the highest accomplishment of God. We see it in a way the Old Testament prophets didn't get to see it. And we see it and we live. Do you know why we see it and we live? Because Jesus took the death. Moses was going to die. Jesus died. I don't die. That's not on me. Jesus died. That death on the cross satisfies God. I can see the full glory of God because I have Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. But it says this, and this is what's nuts. Verse 10, four verses earlier. He was in the world, the fullest expression of who God is, in the flesh. We're not just reading books. We're like sitting next to him, okay? He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He made a house call. No one answered the door. They missed the glory. They missed the glory. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the famous violinist Joshua Bell. In 2007, he did an experiment with the Washington Post. This guy is like virtuoso, Bach, Mozart, plays everything. He's like the man, makes you know, a bazillion dollars being awesome at the violin. And so he goes to the subway in Washington, D.C. He wears regular street clothes and puts on a ball cap. And he begins playing music, and he's playing the music that he would play at Carnegie Hall, that he would play, you know, with the, the great, on the greatest stages in the world, and he plays it right there in the Washington, D.C. subway, and he's playing it on a violin that's worth $3.5 million, okay? He puts out a dish to collect money. Over the course of that hour, 1,097 people pass by, and he makes... $52.17. Joshua Bell makes $52.17 playing the same music he would have earned thousands and thousands of dollars for had he played on the you know, greatest stages in the world, in Carnegie Hall. The people missed the glory. The people missed the glory. And so what I'm bringing to you, do you see the glory? Or have you missed it? Have you missed the glory? Do you just walk by, right? Just like Joshua Bell, like this amazing, incredible expression of who God is. Just walk by, just like the people in verse 10, the world did not know him. God has shown himself in the cross, and he's, he has cemented himself as who he is in the empty tomb. And it's a glory that the whole world has to give an account for. Did you see it? Or not, the glory has been revealed. It's the first thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a very weighty and heavy thing. It is a marvelous thing. It is something that's too much even for us to fully comprehend. And yet it's true. Moving forward, the glory is about to be revealed in the cross. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? And that brings us to our second point. 
the glory of Jesus revealed in us. This is what it says in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus again is preparing his disciples for his time without them. And he's preparing them by saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. It's kind of like whenever Hannah tries to go to work and the kids are like holding on to her leg, right? She's like, where I'm going, you cannot come, right? And I'm like, stay with dad. And they say, no, right? They don't want to stay with me. But that's what he's doing. He's trying to prepare them for life without him. And so he gives them this. He's going to leave a few things with them. We're going to see as we continue forward. But first he gives us this one command. And he says this. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That you love one another. Now, that's kind of strange because that's not a new commandment. That's, that's a very old commandment. Loving each other was not new at all. Uh, in Matthew 22, a scribe comes to Jesus and he asks them, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 37 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the Shema, okay, from Deuteronomy. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying, if you want to understand all the Old Testament law, then keep these two commandments. The first about loving God comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. The second about loving others comes from Leviticus 19.18. So how can Jesus say that this is a new commandment? A new commandment I, I leave with you to love one another. Well, he can say it, and we'll see why whenever we finish the verse. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. This new commandment is new because it's patterned after a new love, a fuller love. What this means, and we see the golden rule kind of thrown around in our society. I try to live my life by the golden rule. Loving your neighbor as yourself is weaker than loving your neighbor as Jesus loves your neighbor. Loving your neighbor as yourself is weaker than loving your neighbor as Jesus loves you. You are to love each other just as I have loved you. The world has never seen such a display of God's self-sacrificial love before it saw the cross. The world never knew such a love before it saw Jesus. And that's why he's saying it's a new commandment. And that's what Jesus does all the time. He takes the Old Testament commandments, he says about adultery, you shall not commit adultery, but he says, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. He takes the Old Commandments and he magnifies them based on who he is. And so you love each other just as I have loved you. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote many other letters. He wrote three other letters, the most important being the first, uh, the book of 1 John. It was a letter that he wrote. If you've read that letter and reading this text here, 
it's it's no um, mystery the topic why he wrote so much on the, the central theme, which is love. In that book, we learn that God is love. In that book, we learn that we love God because he first loved us. And in that book, you get a restatement of this command from Jesus in 1 John 3.16. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Because Jesus did this, we see that expression, we see the cross, again, the glory of God. We see the cross, and we understand by that cross, this is what we are to do with other people. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We have Valentine's Day coming up. i got to schedule a dinner, actually. I'm thinking about that for Valentine's Day. We have Valentine's Day coming up where we celebrate love. Let me be clear, Jesus is not your Valentine. That is a far weaker love than the love that he loves you with. The love that he loves you with is a much greater love. It's a love that dies on the cross for you. It's a glorious love. It's a life-changing, world-altering love. And he has called you to love other people with that same love. And something happens whenever you do that. To finish off the verse there, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. But again, it's not a Valentine's love. It's a giving love. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that willfully suffers loss so that someone else can be blessed, can be made to feel loved. It's a love that gives of itself And then the degree to which you see and believe in the cross is the degree to which you are able to love others with that same expression of love. This is the glory of God revealed in us. And that's the incredible thing. We see the greatest expression of God's glory in the crucifixion, and then we take part in that same glory by living it out. Again, what Moses couldn't even just see a pinch of, we get to fully participate in through the inner working of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that Jesus brings from loving others with the same love that Christ loves them. And so this is awesome. The glory of God, seen, understood, appreciated. The glory of Jesus revealed in us in loving others through love. It's all actually pretty good. And then Peter opens his mouth. And that leads us to our third and final point. The glory denied in us. 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So there's my kid again. There's there's Ellie with Hannah. Where are you going, Mom? You can't go. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here we see Peter, ever sure of himself, always ready with a response to something that Jesus says, right? Always ready to say something to Jesus that rubs him the wrong way. Recall in the Gospels, Jesus 
tell, he prepares his disciples three times. He says, I'm going to be crucified. Right after Peter confesses Jesus as a son of God, really knocks it out of the park, so to speak, Jesus says this, and, and Peter says, no, you can't die. You can't do that. You can't say such things. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man, the things of this world. In a similar way, we see Peter right here speaking to Jesus, speaking bigger than he knew. Right? And they talk about Peter being the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth because he always puts his foot in his mouth. You can say this is another part of that. Speaking bigger than you knew. He says, Lord, I'll never leave you. Lord, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. Talking a talk that he would not be able to walk. Consider from the perspective of Jesus, hearing Peter say these things and knowing that just in a few hours, Peter will go back on this word. There's no doubt in Peter's mind, resolve that he will do this, but Peter will fold like a lawn chair. He will deny Jesus three times. And if you know the story, which we'll get to very soon, Peter does deny Jesus three times. A little servant girl, and this is to add insult to injury, someone that, you know, he should have, why would he be afraid? A little servant girl says, I saw you with Jesus. He says, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't me. The call to faithfulness and the cost of following Jesus is much greater than this ambitious Peter knew. And because of that, it was a glory that Peter denied. A few years ago, I was at a friend's house, Larry Rich's house, for you guys that know Larry. And if you know Larry, you know that he can be a guy that's kind of tough to pin down. He's kind of like a watermelon seed. You can't get him between your fingers. He always kind of splits out of there. I was finally able to go to his house and hang out with him, okay? And we're getting together, doing a Bible study, and uh, it's cool. You know, we're kind of working through God's Word about 15 minutes. We get a knock on the door, and we go to the door, and it's two Jehovah's Witnesses there. And I'm like, wow, like, talk about God ordained, right? There's a guy who looked like um, he was an immigrant, he was an Asian guy, you know, broken English, and he had a lady there uh, chatting, chatting with him. And, you know, talk, I'm a pastor, right? I have these conversations. I know about, you know, the beliefs of Jehovah's Witness, and, and it's just in God's Word, and it's just not there, and it's just, you know, the heretical teachings and all that. And this is like go time for me. Especially with Larry, because Larry's new in his faith. You got this guy who's speaking broken English, and then this other lady, and like, let's do this. I, let's let's have this conversation. I gotta, you know, gotta jump here. But I didn't say anything. I just said, yeah, we're having Bible study too. Oh wow, okay, we'll see you later. Close the door, and that was it. It was done. And then the guy left. The Asian guy and the lady without a witness. And I think about that. Why didn't I say anything? I know I'm called to do that. You're all called to do that. Why didn't I say anything? I knew this guy was being led astray. I knew what was going on here. Well, I didn't say anything for the same reason that Peter didn't say anything. Because I was afraid. I was scared. I was fearful. And I let that fear deny glory. Right? I let that fear deny glory. Glory that was due to Jesus, I dropped the ball. 
Consider if you approach your life this way. That you are here to glorify God and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of me doing that. Because that's why I was created. Because there is a greater glory, a glory that I've been called into. And I'm not going to let fear, I'm not going to let doubt, I'm not going to let sin, anything, get in the way of the glory that's due to Jesus' name. And the good for me that comes from it. We read in Philippians that God gave Jesus the name that's above every name, so that every knee would bow in heaven and in the earth. But for me, that name wasn't that glorious. It wasn't nearly as glorious as my fear was in the moment. The Father glorifies the Son. What do I do? If I'm being honest, a lot of my life isn't this, but a denial of glory. A denial of glory. And as I think about that, and there's been a lot of times I've really missed it, and I know a lot of times for you guys too, whether it be an opportunity to witness or just sin, struggle, whatever it is, a lot of time that I'm denying the glory because I'm just afraid, and I'm not speaking the name of Christ as it truly is, but I'm seeing a little bit less than what it actually is. It can lead to despair. But again, the glory of Jesus. We would despair. But, because of Christ, we don't have to despair. (laughs) Because Jesus even comes to us in our shame, in our denial, in our despair, in our mess-ups, and speaks a better word, speaks a word of grace. If you know this guy Peter, how did the story end for Peter? Deny Jesus three times, first time before a servant girl, ashamed, Jesus comes to Peter, and he tells Peter that you will receive power in Acts chapter 1 to be my witness. Peter, even though you were afraid of three random people and wouldn't speak my name, we know how it ends up with Peter. Acts chapter 2 receives the Holy Spirit, speaks the gospel to the very people that killed Jesus. Peter, afraid to speak to a servant girl, goes to those people in Acts chapter 2 and preaches the gospel and says, you have crucified Jesus, you need to repent and believe, and 3,000 people are saved on that day. That's the glory of Jesus. That he can take people that deny him, that despair, that are ashamed, that just mess up. And he doesn't quit on them. He doesn't give up on them. No, he still dies for them. And they receive grace upon grace upon grace and makes them into his own image for his glory. A lot of times denial sets up for a greater glory. I think we can see that in the message of Peter. And so for you, as we kind of working through God's word together and it's working on you, I want to point you to that greater glory. I know how easy it is for me to just grow numb to it. But how amazing is it that we can see Jesus on the cross, that we get to participate in that by loving each other, and that even if we deny it, that God's grace is greater still. I want to encourage you with that, to look to the cross, understand and see the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message. We thank you. um, How outstanding is it, God? How incredible is it? 2,000 years removed here in Spire 29 in Gora, Maine, that this message, this event that happened 
so long ago, in the halfway across the world, echoes, reverberates through history and comes to me and comes to all these people here, and it's still changing, folks. It's still working. It's still glorious. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see that glory and to live for that glory, to love for that glory, and to not deny that glory whenever other things come and threaten that glory. Lord, help us. You are far greater than what we even can appreciate and imagine, and we need you to open up our eyes to see it. I often think that I settle for so much less than what you offer me. I settle for so much less than what you have given to me in Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Help me, Lord, to be just hungry for your glory in my life. For everyone here, Lord, wherever we need you, wherever we're at, whether we're just trying to figure out this stuff, whether we're first time in the church at all, or we've been coming to church and knowing Jesus forever, Lord, we need you to meet with us. I thank you, Lord, that you've met with us this morning. <clears throat> May you be glorified, Lord, and help us along. We pray and do and sing and preach and do all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.